Imagine standing before God, your creator, who gives you everything you have, and hearing him say to you, I hold you completely responsible for my law. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. How does the doctrine of depravity impact how we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part two of his current series titled, Your Day in Court. We're continuing in our study of the teaching of Paul on what theologians call depravity. You owe a debt to God. He's given you everything. You owe Him obedience. And every time you fail to obey Him, you accumulate debt. Every evil word you've ever spoken, every sinful action you've ever taken has added to that debt. But for those of us who trust in Christ, He's canceled our debt and paid it in full. How could He do that? Well, let's find out as we join Tom Pennington now on The Word Unleashed. As we learn, toxic speech then spills over in verses 15 to 17 into destructive relationships. We just destroy every relationship we touch. If it weren't for saving grace in those who are redeemed, and if it weren't for common grace in the lives of those who aren't, we would destroy everything we touch. That's the depth of depravity. In verse 18, he, he comes to the foundation of depravity. Here's ground zero. Here's the real issue. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. The reason we make these choices, the reasons we are the way we are, the reason that we do what we do is because we don't fear God, our creator. And therefore, we do what we want. Now, today we come to the third part of this paragraph. We've seen the formal indictment of man's depravity in verse 9. We've seen the biblical evidence for man's depravity in verses 10 to 18. In verses 19 and 20, we come to the legal implications of man's depravity. The legal implications of man's depravity. These two verses reveal God's view of every man. Here is man's true status before God. In fact, in these two verses, we hear God's final verdict on every human life. Don't forget, this this section of Romans is charged with legal language. Paul has laid out his indictment. He has laid out the evidence. And now comes the verdict in verses 19 and 20. What's remarkable here is that is that Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, allows us to glimpse into the future. Paul fast-forwards to the day described in Revelation chapter 20, verse 15 and following, the day when every single unbelieving human being will stand before God, his or her creator. It's called the, the great white throne judgment. What happens there? What will God say to you if you get to that day without trusting in Christ? Well, Paul tells us right here. (coughs) If you have never confessed Jesus as Lord, 
If you have never repented of your sins and put your confidence in Christ and his work alone, these two verses describe exactly what God will say to you on the day of judgment. This will be his verdict on your life. This is your story. If, on the other hand, you have embraced Christ as Lord and Savior, and and I, I trust that's true for many of us here, this passage is for you as well. Remember, Paul wrote this letter to the Christians in the Roman churches. Why is such a detailed description of man's sinfulness so important for us to hear? Why is it important for us to understand what the verdict would be for us apart from Christ? Because it's only as you come to grasp the reality of what your situation would be at the judgment if it weren't for the work of Jesus Christ that you really come to appreciate what God has done for you. It's only as you grasp in your mind how it would really unfold for you before God your creator if it weren't for what Jesus Christ did. It's only then that you will worship him as you ought to worship him. It's only then that you will love him and serve him and follow him with your life. As your understanding of God's grace deepens, as it does in studying a passage like this, your love for God will grow and your pursuit of holiness will become even more intense as you, as you get it, as you understand what Christ saved you from. So if you're a Christian, as we walk our way through these verses, I want you for a few minutes to forget that you're a Christian. And I want you to see what, apart from Christ, your day in court would really be like. If you were to stand before God, apart from his grace, this would be his verdict towards you. His verdict here in verses 19 and 20 contains five elements, or we could say five separate legal decisions that together constitute God's final verdict on every man. Because we're going to celebrate communion together, we're just going to look at the first one today, and then, Lord willing, we'll look at the other four next Sunday. The first decision in God's verdict toward every human being outside of Christ is this. We are responsible before God's law. We are responsible before God's law. Now, think about it. That's very important. If God's about to condemn the sinner for breaking his law, he first has to establish that you are, in fact, responsible before his law. And that's where Paul begins. Verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Clearly, Paul is making a point here about our legal relationship to God's law. He begins by saying, now we know. Paul uses that expression when what he's about to say, he believes his readers will largely agree with. Most of them will say that's true. And so he says, now we know that whatever the law says, clearly in context, he's talking about God's law. And he's talking about the content of God's law. What does he mean? Well, in context, obviously, he meant the Old Testament passages that he just quoted. That string of passages that begins in verse 10 runs down through verse 18. From the Psalms and from Isaiah. Whatever the law says, and certainly it says that. 
But the phrase is probably best translated more comprehensively. Something like this. Everything that the law says, or all that the law says, whenever and however God's law speaks. Literally, the Greek text says that God's law is constantly speaking, is speaking. It's a constant reality. But to whom is God's law constantly speaking? Notice how Paul refers to them in verse 19. It speaks to those who are under the law. Who are these people who are under the law? Well, the phrase obviously can refer to the Jews. It's been used that way already. Look back at chapter 2, verse 12. As he's indicting the Jewish people, he says, For all who have sinned without the law, that's the Gentiles who don't have the written law, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law, and here he's talking to the Jews, will be judged by that written law that they have. So it can refer to the Jews. And many commentators say the first part of verse 19 in chapter 3 is referring to the Jews, and the second half of verse 19 in verse 20 is referring to the rest of humanity, all of humanity. That's possible. But I don't think so. Because remember, in verse 9 of chapter 3, Paul made a transition, a huge transition. He's talked about the pagans in chapter 1, the Jews in chapter 2, in the first eight verses of chapter 3. Verse 9 of chapter 3, he says, We have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And from that point forward, he talks about all of humanity. No exceptions. In fact, notice down in verse 19 the results of the law speaking to those who are under the law. The result of this is that every mouth is shut. Verse 19, all the world becomes accountable to God. Verse 20, no flesh is justified. So in context then, when he says those who are under the law, he must be referring to whom? Every human being without exception, Jew and Gentile. But how exactly does the law constantly speak? Well, obviously, the law speaks in, to those who have a written copy. There is the law in writing, and the law speaks to them. Throughout the first three chapters of Romans, Paul refers to the entire Old Testament as the law of God. And so those who have a written copy of the Scripture, to them the law is speaking, and they are under the law. But what about everybody else who doesn't have a written copy? How about the billions of people who have never read the Bible, perhaps never even seen a Bible in history past and even today? What about them? How is the law speaking to them? Well, Paul, remember, has already answered that masterfully. Go back to chapter 1, verse 32. He's talking about idolaters, people who don't worship the true God. And he says of them in verse 32, they know the ordinance of God. They know what God requires. And they know that those who practice the sins they're practicing are worthy of death. So they know God is the true God. They know that he created all things. They know that he's righteous and that he has expectations. And they know that if they sin against God's requirements and expectations, his ordinance, then 
they're going to be worthy of punishment from God. They know all of that, but they don't have the Bible. How do they know that? Go over to chapter 2. Remember verses 14 and 15. Here's how they know. For when the Gentiles, the pagans, who do not have the written law, do instinctively or by nature the things of the law, these not having a law or a law to themselves. And here's the key. When they do what the law requires, but they don't have a written law, they show the work of the law written where? In their hearts. It's written in their hearts. Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. How do they know? Notice that little phrase in verse 15. The work of the law is written in their hearts. It's the only time in the New Testament that's used. It, it means the requirement, the basic requirement of the law is written into the soul of every man. God wired every human soul with this software. They basically know what he requires. It's the work of the law. The thoughts, the words, the behaviors that the law requires. Every person is born with the basic requirements of the law imprinted indelibly on his heart. God made sure it happened. So not one person has ever been completely ignorant of God's requirements. You say, wait a minute, how do we know that? I mean, obviously it says that there, but is there evidence of that? Paul says, absolutely there is. First of all, there's evidence in man's behavior. Verse 14, pagans do by nature the things of the law. Those who don't have the written scripture often do some of the very things or hold up as the ideal, the very things that the law requires. Unbelievers are not immune from understanding something of what God requires. They often at least understand that they should honor and obey their parents. Unbelievers often try to be loyal to their spouses. Unbelievers try generally to speak the truth. Many unbelievers are generous with the poor. Most unbelievers never murder. Most cultures value life and honor and selflessness. All those things the law demands. But they've never read it in the law. So how do they know? Because it's, it's programmed into the software of the human soul. That's evidence. There's another piece of evidence. Not only their behavior shows that this work of the law is written in the soul, but their conscience shows it. Verse 15, their conscience bears witness. The conscience shows the existence of this work of the law written on the heart. Because all the conscience does is it sits in judgment on how I am acting out that work of the law that's written on the heart. And it says guilty or innocent, depending on how I choose, what I choose. So our conscience shows this reality. Not just that, our thoughts. Notice verse 15, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. This is separate from the conscience. Your conscience works automatically without your thoughts. It just does it to you. But then we make moral assessments of our own past decisions, 
We sit in judgment and say, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Or, yeah, that was good. I'm glad I made that choice. We do the same thing to the moral actions of others. We sit in judgment and we say, that was wrong. When we do that, we are showing evidence of the work of the law written in our hearts. Certain things we understand can be measured against an objective standard. Now go back to chapter 3. What Paul is saying here then, when he says those who are under the law, he's talking about every human being. The Jews are under the law in the sense that they have the written law. The Gentiles, the pagans are under the law in the sense that they have the software of what God expects. They have it wired into the software of their souls. So we are under the law. Every person who's ever lived is under God's law, either the written law or the work of the law written on the heart. And we're responsible to keep it. We're responsible before God's law. You know how this works. I mean, if you, if you like biking, for example, and you decide you're going to go to one of the busy downtown streets in Dallas, and you're going to pop your bike on the sidewalk, because that'd be cool, and you get on your bike and you say, I'm going to ride my bike down this sidewalk with all these people everywhere, and then you see a sign that says, no biking. Or maybe there is no sign, but you've, you've studied driver's ed, you've, you've heard other people talk about getting tickets for riding their bike on sidewalks, you, you've never seen people riding on busy city sidewalks in there, you know, except people that it's clear they're not thinking clearly. You know, you, so you make all of these conclusions and you know you shouldn't. And then you do. What happens? Well, your conscience goes off. It accuses you. It says, wait a minute, you're breaking the law. This is wrong. You shouldn't be doing this. But let's say that you didn't know you shouldn't ride your bike on a busy Dallas, downtown Dallas sidewalk. And the police pulls you over. The, the, the police is there, and the policeman comes over, and he says, Excuse me, sir, what are you doing riding your bike on the sidewalk? Oh, I'm sorry, officer. I didn't know. What's the officer going to say to you? Oh, that's okay. It happens all the time. Have a nice day. No. They're going to give you that little ticket, that little citation. Or maybe if they're kind, they have some discretion, they might give you a warning. But it's not okay that you didn't know. You are just as guilty regardless of your level of knowledge. Whether there was a sign there and you read it, or whether you should have known, or whether you didn't know at all. Same thing is true when it comes to God. You live under God's government. You live in His world. You breathe His air. You use... Your heart beats because of his action. He gives you everything you have. He gives you the food to eat. He sustains your life. And he has made his law obvious. It's in writing and the work of the law is written in your heart. So every human is fully responsible to keep all the requirements. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And that's every living person. God will grant no exceptions. No one can claim ignorance of the judgment. No one's going to show up before the judgment and say to God, God, wait a minute. I, I know you're interested in justice. You just need to know. I didn't know. You can't say that. You won't say that. Paul's point is at the judgment, God will come to this verdict about every person who stands before him. You Knew. 
you knew and you were responsible before my law. If you arrive at the judgment without Christ, the first legal decision that God the judge will make is that you were under his law. You have no excuse. You were completely responsible to keep it. Can you imagine this? In fact, do imagine this with me for a moment. Imagine standing before God, your creator, who gives you everything you have, and hearing him say to you, I hold you completely responsible for my law. That is what he'll say. If you go there without Christ, I hold you completely responsible. You should have kept it. You owed me that. I gave you everything. And let me tell you, he will say, from this moment on, I'm going to evaluate every thought you ever had, every word you ever spoke, every action you ever took against my law, because you were responsible to my law. And from this moment on, you will get from me nothing but perfect, unwavering justice. You will get exactly what you have earned. Imagine that, because that's exactly how it will be for those outside of Christ. Because God tells us that's what he's like. In his self-revelation in Exodus 34, 7, he says this about himself. I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That's what God said. That's who he is. He's just, perfectly just. That's how it will unfold apart from Christ. But for those of us in Christ, let me take you out of that imaginary world and back to reality. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, just very briefly. Colossians 2, verse 13. Paul says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, spiritually dead, God made you alive together with Christ. That's regeneration that Steve was talking about a couple of weeks ago. And then he uses several pictures of of forgiveness. He says, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Now notice verse 14. Having canceled out, literally having wiped out, having erased the certificate of debt consisting of God's decrees, there's God's law, against us, which was hostile to us. Notice what he says. You've got to get the word picture. The certificate of debt is a promissory note. It's it's an articulation of the debts you owe someone. I owe them this and this and this and this, and then you sign your name. That's a promissory note. It's an IOU in a formal sense. Paul says we owed God obedience. He gave us everything. We owed him obedience. And every time we failed to obey him, we accumulated debt. It's like that was every thought, every sinful thought you've ever had was added to the debt. Every evil word you've ever spoken added to the debt. Every sinful action you've ever made added to the debt. This becomes a massive document. It's what you owe God, and it's what you will pay. You're responsible before God's law. But for those who trust in Christ, notice what happens. Verse 14, he wiped it out. He canceled it. Paid in full. How could he do that? Verse 14 goes on to say, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. It's a 
There's such a beautiful word picture here. You know, when someone died on a cross, their crimes were nailed to the cross. Jesus had no crime, so the only thing his said was, this is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. But normally, their crime for which they were dying was nailed to the cross, so everybody passing by knew what it was. Paul says, if you're in Christ, God took that list of your crimes your promissory note, your debt, every sinful thought, every sinful word, every sinful act, and he nailed that to the cross, and that was the reason Jesus died. For your crimes and not his own. And therefore, the debt's wiped clean. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that was part two of Your Day in Court. Tom will have part three next time, and we do hope you'll join us then. Does the Bible speak about the government and structure of the church? In his book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, Tom Pennington presents in-depth evidence from Scripture to show that God intends every local church to be governed by a plurality of godly men. In an age where a biblical ecclesiology is often neglected, it is critical to recapture what the Bible teaches about the structure of the church. Purchase your copy of Tom's book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.